It is Easter Sunday, and so I have chosen a Easter passage to preach on this morning. If you'll join me in the reading of Scripture from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. It's in the New Living Translation. There are Bibles under 50% of your seats, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew 28. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb, and they were very frightened and also filled with great joy. They rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning on this resurrection Easter Sunday. Lord, may we enter into your story of life and life eternal. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive, and we pray and trust that your Holy Spirit is present in this room, guiding us into your presence and speaking the truth of life. Pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, my wife and I, Caitlin, have our own resurrection story of sorts. Um, I've shared this from the stage before, but we dated for 12 years before we got married. And once we were engaged, it's normally where then it moves on to marriage, but we were engaged and then we broke up, which is uh, about as close as you can get to the finish line without getting there. And we are about a month away, actually, from the wedding. We hadn't sent out invites yet, and it felt like something's happening, and we ended it. But we got back together about a year and a half later. And in getting back together, we had this question of, if you were engaged before, and now you get back together, are you still engaged, or do you need to propose again? Are you dating and have to propose, or do you pick back up and engage? We didn't agree on exactly how that was supposed to happen, and I won't survey the room because I did it when I was preaching at TCNJ a month ago, and it came unanimously that Caitlin was right. You have to propose again, so I'm not even going to question it now. But for me, it was a real struggle. It was a real trial because I felt like I had given it all at the first proposal. I like dug deep into my well of creativity and romanticism, and I had really videos, and I surveyed all of our family and, and wrote a story of our first date, and then had all of them read pieces of it. I edited it together. I had just moved into the Hale Street. That would be our future home, video, all that kind of stuff, right? So I was like, well, if I propose again, it's like the first one didn't happen. And I tried really hard on that, and I got nothing. And it gave me such anxiety that I was like, I have to do this again, but I don't know what to do now or how to do this. And so I'm really struggling with what that next step is. And I had finally, you know, 
got together, like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to propose again. I got the ring back out. I was preparing myself. And my friends and I had been celebrating my roommate's wedding that night. We had his bachelor party, and we came back past the church, and the lights were on, and not supposed to be on at 11 o'clock at night, and they were like, oh, you should go check out what's going on. I come to the door, and Frank, who worked here at the time, shoved me in the door, and they locked it behind me, and Kate had set up this whole room um, with candles and a video of us, and she had decided the second time she would propose to me. So when people ask, what was the proposal like? We had to go, which one? In that moment, I had struggled with what that next step was going to be, but in my own moment of doubt and struggle, Kate graciously took that first step towards me, and she took the step that I was afraid to take to come and meet once again. As we talk about the resurrection, as we talk about Easter Sunday, we are going to be looking at this morning the fact that not just is Jesus Christ alive, but that in his fullness of life, Jesus comes for you. He comes and takes that first step, that second step, that third, to embrace you. And we may be wondering whether we're new to the faith, asking questions, or been a Christian for decades. Still the question remains, how do I grow or or, or move closer into Jesus? And in the resurrection, we learn. And in this story this morning, He comes towards us. We simply need to embrace the life He brings. Let's look at the passage as we've read already. We're going to see it from what was happening in that early morning. So they come early on Sunday, and we understand Easter weekend, right, three days, but it's really kind of barely 24 hours because he dies late on Friday night and he resurrects first thing on Sunday morning. So the reason they come on Sunday morning is that Saturday is Sabbath, Shabbat. They they can't do anything. It's far enough to the grave that it would be, in their culture, enough of a walk to be constituted work. So they can't walk that distance. And they wanted to come and bring burial spices and either leave them at the tomb or anoint Jesus' body, which also would be work. So for a whole day, they're stuck. And it's supposed to be a day of rest. And if you've ever had a day of rest or a vacation day when you were really anxious about something, it's really hard to rest while you're afraid and worried of what's going to happen. They're, they're doing this until Sunday morning. And there's beauty in the fact that the very first moment they can, as early as they possibly can, they get up to go and see Jesus, to go and be with his body, even in grief. There's another reason why they come early in the morning as well. Jesus is a revolutionary executed on a Roman cross for claiming to be a king that would rival Rome. And to go and be at his grave is also kind of dangerous. So they want to go early in the morning when it's dark and maybe they won't be seen. It's significant too that in nearly every account of the resurrection, It is women who are at the grave first. Can I get an amen to all the women in the room? All right, awesome. We will talk about this in three weeks on Mother's Day in detail, but a reminder this morning, if you're writing a story in first century Israel, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in a patriarchal society, and you're trying to convince people that Jesus resurrected, you would not start with the testimony of women. They can't testify in court. They usually are not even able to write. They're not held in the esteem that we hopefully hold women in today. And so the only reason you would have this passage start 
with women coming to the grave and being the first to witness Jesus is if that's the way it happened. Ancient scholars call this the argument from embarrassment. Again, sorry, women. The argument that you wouldn't write it in a way to discredit yourself unless that's just what happened. They're writing an account of not just an idea or a theology, but of history and reality of what happened in Christ's resurrection. As they're standing there at the grave, expecting death, bringing their burial spices, ready to weep at the grave, what they encounter is not a dead Jesus. What they encounter is an open tomb and a stone rolled aside and an angel sitting on the stone, an earthquake happens, lightning, it's powerful, it's bright, it's terrifying, so much so the angel does what angels do and goes, it's okay, it's okay, stop, don't be afraid. It's so overwhelming, the Roman guards pass out from fear, and then later on in the passage, they have to make up a lie about what happened because they're embarrassed. And the angel says to the women five things. Don't be afraid. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. It's just like he promised. Tell your friends. I want us to practice this together. Can you do this together with me? You'll have the prompts on the screen, but let's all say this together. Number one, don't be afraid. Two, Jesus is not dead. Three, Jesus is alive. Four, it's just like he promised. Five, tell your friends. And as they leave the angel's presence, they're leaving with that kind of anxious energy you have where it's a good thing, but it's also kind of a scary thing. You're getting married tomorrow. It's exciting, but you're also nervous. Um, you're about to have your first child. You're excited about it, but you're like, I'm going to mess this up. And you have these, these dueling emotions. This is where they are. They're excited, but they're scared. And as they're leaving, excited and scared, Jesus appears. And they respond to Jesus in the way that most of us do. Well, most of us should. They fall at his feet and worship. For the women in this passage, there are real and concrete struggles and problems they're coming into. And even the resurrection for them is problematic. The first thing it says is that Jesus is not who we thought he was. Jesus is not who we thought. I thought that he was a good teacher. I thought that he was a healer. I thought that he was a kind and loving person. I also thought that he was going to be the Jewish Messiah. And the Jewish Messiah would lead us in battle like King David. He would set us free from the Roman government. He would put Israel back on top and we'd have power and authority. And because I've been following him for three years, I'd get power and authority. And then he died. And revolutionaries that are successful don't usually die. It's hard to rule and reign over a nation when you're dead. And the Israelites had a lot of experience with this. They are a rebellious people in history. They would rebel. There'd be revolutionaries, dozens of them in this time frame of Jesus, all of them executed and losing their life and none of them being remembered. People don't remember the ones who didn't resurrect. Jesus was dead, and now he's resurrected. I had an idea of who Jesus was. He's not that. So what is he? How do I understand this now? He's bigger than I thought he was. This is different than I thought he was. And the weight of now what that means, that Jesus wasn't who I thought. The second, this changes everything now. 
This changes everything I, I think. This changes my life as a follower of this rabbi who has now conquered death itself and declared by angels. This changes my life. Not just am I following a good teacher. Now, the person I'm following is resurrected, is alive again, is God himself declared an authority. This is now really going to affect my life. I'm not just following a good teacher. Now I'm following God who is king in a nation that has authority over us. So not just does it affect my life, but also I'm now going to be thinking about my nation. How is this going to affect my community, the country I'm a part of? Because they've been waiting for someone like this. And now that Jesus is resurrected, he's come, but Rome is not going to like that. And what's going to happen to my country and my nation and my people now that things are upside down? One more level. What is going to happen to this planet? I thought people who died stayed died. That's the laws of thermodynamics. Things that go away don't come back. And he's come back. What does this mean about living, about life, about physics and the earth? How do I understand any of this now? He's changed all of how I understand my life and existence. In just a few decades, Jesus' resurrection becomes so significant that Paul, the Apostle Paul, church planter, writes this about this moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching, all of it, Everything is useless, and your faith, your belief in God is useless. This has changed how we understand all of our religion and life and dynamic. It's all different now. The third thing they would struggle with, particularly for being women in this moment, will anyone believe me? How do I share this dramatic, life-changing event? I, as a woman... I'm going to go tell a room full of men that I went to worship and I went to put burial spices at Jesus' tomb, but the tomb was empty. There was an angel and an earthquake. The angel spoke to me and he told me that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And then I saw Jesus and I kissed his feet and he told me that you all should now go home. Reversal of what some have said to Beth Moore. In this second century, Roman critique of the Christian movement, they call this the declaration of a hysterical woman who in her grief can't process it and shares this. This is the weight of what they're saying. Who's going to believe me? This dramatic life-changing thing in a society where my voice doesn't have weight. How will they believe me that this happened? We have an elitist modern view of ancient history and ancient people. We say, well, now we are informed and enlightened and we read books and have science. And so we now know that resurrection is kind of a crazy, ridiculous thing. But the ancient people, they would be like, yeah, sure, resurrection. Yeah, it happens. I worship the sun, whatever. That's not how it worked. In the ancient world, if you were dead, you stayed dead. There was no understanding and claim of resurrection. This was a foreign concept. This was a new thing to them. And as we said, there were a lot of revolutionaries 
and they all died, and only ancient Near Eastern scholars know their names. Our problem is a little different. To us, Jesus is not different than we thought. He is more than we think. We compartmentalize Jesus in order to understand, in order to grasp, in order to feel more comfortable. We like pieces of Jesus, more understandable aspects of Jesus. And honestly, in this way, we are like the women going to the tomb because we live a life where we have rock-bottom grave expectations of Jesus. We're like that. We come to church and hopefully we can sit through the pastor's sermon. If it's Easter Sunday and you were brought here by someone, I just got to get through this so I can eat a huge ham. I just got to get through this moment. We read a very old, very big book and we try to thumb through this book hoping that something speaks to me. Something gives me life. There's, okay, a good message about life or how to treat somebody. There's a weird message where everybody is killed. There's a lot of weird sex stuff. I'm trying to understand this. We pray and we just kind of toss it into the wind and sort of hope he does something with it. And then some of us think that we have Jesus figured out. I got it. I've been doing this for 40 years. I understand how he works. I have a systematic theology for how he functions in my life. I understand him in these pieces. But the resurrection tells us over and over that God is so much bigger than we could possibly grasp or understand or control. Systematic what? His theology blows it up. And the resurrection declares Jesus is bigger and is more than we think. In two ways, obvious in this passage. The first, Jesus is not just a savior, teacher, and friend. Jesus is a king. He is King Jesus. And what the resurrection tells us is that the cross was not his demise. It was his enthronement as King Jesus, ruler of the world. And that he has a lot to say about life and care and the restored order of creation. This is a really hard one for us today. Because we do not like submitting to authority. And for a lot of good reasons. Honestly, we have in our pocket at all time a device that tells me moment after moment, second after second, of somebody abusing their authority or failing when power was given to them. Whether it's church or whether it's uh, corporate organizations, politicians, or family dynamics, or projector screens, we see power used and abused. And so even Jesus, yes, Jesus, when he declares that we must trust him and submit to his authority, there is a part of us that goes, ooh, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. I am, I'm not sure I like giving up control because I've seen what happens to people when they do that. And even though I read those stories about your life and you seem really good, I don't really trust the people that you're giving to work with me. The second thing we struggle with is that Jesus says that he is life. Not that he has life, not that he's been resurrected to life, that he is life itself. He is more than an example of a good person. Christianity is more than a moral code. There is more to life than we can understand, and life is embodied in the person of Christ Jesus. As he says in John chapter 11, verse 25, it's recorded. 
He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. The resurrection proves this claim. Not that he has the power of life, but that life is in Christ so fully and so powerfully that death itself cannot grasp him. His life has power over death itself. And so we ask the question then, not will they believe us, but can I believe this? Can I believe this message? Can I grasp this? Can I own this? To believe that a first century Jewish rabbi was God and that he conquered death by resurrecting after a Roman execution and that if I believe in him, he will somehow not only provide me with eternal life, somehow not only free me from the guilt and shame of my sins and failures, but he will also provide his Holy Spirit to live in me, and he is in me and I am in him. That is the challenge of belief in the resurrection. Can I believe that life itself is embodied in the presence of God? resurrected from the grave? Can I believe that there is hope in a future resurrection and that as broken as I may see this world, as much injustice as there may be, that I can believe that one day justice will reign and goodness and creation will be put back in order and all disease and death and power will be removed in the beauty of this God? Can I believe that I myself am valuable enough and desired enough that my creator would conquer death to know me and be with me. Can I believe any of that? For the women, the angel says to them, as we've seen, don't be afraid. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. It's just like he promised. Tell your friends. The angel tells them, and they walk away with shaky legs and shaky knees, trying to grasp what's going to happen. There's a lot of weight on this. There's a lot of weight on their shoulders. They have to go tell this message and all of the implications of it to all of these men, and then they have to go back to Galilee. And so they're wondering, how am I going to do this? What's going to happen with this? And then Jesus does what Jesus does. He doesn't put a burden on us and ask us to prove it or carry it. He shows up. He says, all right, I know this is a lot. I know you're trying to grasp this, but I'm not asking you to do this alone. I'm here. And not just am I here, I've come for you. It says he came to them and he welcomed them. He said, you're welcome with me. You're welcome in my presence. I have come for you. And they fall at his feet. We've all had that experience. The heavy burden on our shoulders of big news, of a difficult decision, of what's coming. And the moment that it's removed from us, I could collapse. I could just fall from the weight of that being taken off of me. The resurrected Jesus has found and has welcomed them. Their view is too small. They're looking for Jesus in a grave. He's not in that grave. They expect a good man and a powerful teacher. They're looking for a dead Jesus, a human Jesus, and they never would have found him 
if he hadn't come looking for them. Knowing God is an act of grace, not our decision, his grace drawing us into him. This is the biblical story. Not that we have made this work and we've understood and we've built a religion and a faith of how to live with more peace, but that our God has pursued us and come for us. From Genesis chapter 3 through to the resurrection and into Revelation and the remaking of all things is the story of a God passionately pursuing his lost and broken people. And in the resurrection, we see the greatest moment of Christ coming for us. For us, the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus has found and welcomed us, you. He's come for us. And we hold today maybe our highest unarticulated philosophy and theology is about identity. Who am I? What am I about? What is my purpose in life? It's literally the highest calling. Just look at the internet for a second, have a conversation with somebody. Who we are and our identity is one of the last bastions of sacred belief, is who I am. But we mistakenly hold to an idea that we create our identity on our own, that I I do it, I make it. I decide who I am, that's me, and no one can shift or take it away from me. When what that is misunderstanding is that we are social creatures. We are relational people. And our identity is made by the people we are with and are around. Our identity is formed when we find a community that loves and values us. And what they love and value in us becomes our identity. All right, this is the part of me that matters. Yeah, this part of me they love and they like. When you love someone deeply, and you care about them passionately, and they love and care about you back, it shapes our identity of how we see ourselves and who we are. When we respect someone highly, and their opinion matters greatly to us, and what they say about us, who we are, whether that's a teacher or a professor that you love, an author that you've read, a parent, a grandfather, a friend that you have a lot of respect for, what they see in you becomes your identity. And this is the sacred moment of Christ appearing and coming for us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. And in the resurrection and in Christ today, coming for us and speaking to each of us and us as a room. The resurrected Christ is alive and he's coming for you and speaking to you and drawing us into his presence. What he says, the greatest being in the universe says to you, I love you personally, expensively, eternally. He says, I love you. I am not a dead founder that you can know by following my rules. I am a living God that you know by receiving me 
I am alive and while I have ascended to heaven, I have given my spirit to you. And my Holy Spirit draws you into my presence. My Holy Spirit shapes you, guides you, and reaffirms my love and value for you. And that the truth of the resurrection is we know ourselves the more we know Christ Jesus. The more I know the goodness of his eternal love and value, the more I know the beauty of the life that is in him, the more I know of myself as we embrace the value, the love, and the identity that Christ speaks to us. If you'll pray with me. In this Sunday morning, this Easter Resurrection Sunday, I want to give us each an opportunity to embrace that Jesus Christ coming for us and to us. That he is alive and he desires to know you and be known by you. If you are new to faith or if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus or belief in the resurrection and you're one of those people asking that question, can I believe this? Or how much do I believe this? I want to give you a chance this morning to just in one simple prayer take one step of faith towards that belief, towards Jesus who is standing and reaching towards you. If you are a follower of Jesus, to use this as a moment to reconnect and to celebrate that relationship we have. If you'll pray this with me. Jesus, I see you and I receive you this morning. I believe, Jesus, that you came to this earth 2,000 years ago as God and man in one flesh, that you taught, you loved, you healed, and that you lived a righteous and perfect life, and that you took my brokenness and my imperfection onto your own body on the cross, and you died in my place. And that on Sunday morning, in the resurrection, you conquered death itself. You proved the depth of life in you and that death couldn't hold you. And that in the resurrection, you give me an opportunity for that life itself, to be loved eternally and to be loved fully in this world. Jesus, you gave your life for mine. Today, I commit my life to follow you and to know you and to receive you as Savior, as King, as God and friend. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.